Welcome to HeanCast. I'm Kate Kerr, Director of Research at HeanNet. This is the second of a two-part HeanCast on the topic of pain in people with haemophilia. Paul and Natalie will explore some of the practical things that people with haemophilia actually do to manage their pain and how we, as haemophilia clinicians, can help. For both of you, really, what kind of things do patients or people with haemophilia do that you think, hmm, that's interesting? <laughs> uh, lots. There's lots of legal and illegal things. Drug use. Um, and you know what? It is not for me to judge. If you think it's what helpful, fire away. Just don't do anything that's super dangerous and ends up putting you in hospital. Um, for as much as we tell people not to use heat, lots of people use heat. There's this fear that if you put heat on something, it'll make it bleed more. Um, there's also the opposite with the ice to nonsense around if you put ice on it it'll make it not coagulate um man-made uh self-made slings supports setups at home you know we've done home visits where the hairs in my neck stand on end when i see the situation but you know that works for them it appears dangerous or risky to me but it's that allows them to live as they want and so it is letting go. It is that sort of. It is not my business to interfere that much. Um, so Natalie, you're smiling widely at that. Is that something you've seen as well? No, because Paul is completely right, and I also heard uh, very different reactions. But I also uh, think that they are busy with it a lot of their time. When they are in pain, it 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 it, it takes over what they are thinking, what they are doing. And I think if you ask them the question, did you speak about it with your healthcare provider? They say no. And that's for me an incongruence. When I see the time they spend to the management of their pain and the, the real search, the experimentation with everything to, to try to cope with their pain. And then the fact that when they go to the hemophilia treatment center, they do not speak about it. So that's uh, for me uh, difficult to understand, but um, also highlight the need to, to do something about it. To help them so actually that's a really interesting comment because if they don't talk about it and we don't ask then we ne- ne- neither of us ever find out and yet as healthcare professionals we're asking about all kinds of things you know have you had your blood pressure checked have you had you know are you diabetic all those things we really need to do much better don't we that, that was your first question. Why is it a hot topic now and not, not 10 years ago? It's because both patients and healthcare providers had some information that pain was important. And from the patient perspective, there is maybe now a little bit more responsibility to speak about it if it's a problem. And from the healthcare provider side, there is much more attention or there is a start to pay more attention at it. And so, but yes, a lot of people, and if you ask them, why don't you speak about it? Uh, uh, it's also a little bit of fatalism. They can't do anything about it or they will not trust me. As Paul said, with the new medication, sometimes they question if it's possible to feel pain, which is, I think, stupid because other non-hemophilia patients also uh, have pain. Um, but you still have, uh, or we still have a way to go to make it uh, as a, yeah, I would say, a priority in the consultation as well. I think, I totally agree. I think this issue that we don't ask and they don't tell is paternalistic medicine and um, we have to get away from the fact that uh, we 
you know, if, if you're not asking about pain, you may not be asking the right questions generally. You may just be focusing on, have you had any bleach? Yes, no. <clears throat> Are you taking your treatment? Yes, no. Okay, thanks for coming. See you in six months. Actually, you haven't investigated how life is with haemophilia in the last six months. How's work been? Have you had any days off? Has, you know, what bad things have happened be that you judge to be because of your haemophilia to you? Um, but also, if when you are asked about your pain, it is downplayed, or the outcome you get from talking about your pain is more medication or a referral to somebody else. That's a low value, that may be perceived as a low value contact. So actually, why would you mention it again if option A or option B is neither of the options you want? You don't want more medication and you don't want to go and see somebody else who doesn't know hemophilia. So, you know, I, I think we have to take responsibility about um, how we ask questions and also if you ask about pain and you want to help manage it better with the person with hemophilia, well then you should have a physio in your team and you should have one of your nurse specialists in hemophilia that actually subspecializes into the pain bit of hemophilia in the same way we have CNSs who work within our women's clinic. You know, actually there are ways and means of, I think, helping to educate and provide knowledge within a team that will only improve um, because pain is as much part of haemophilia life as bleeding. And I think I think it's an easy way to, for us to bump patients off to pain clinic uh, where they will wait for 18 months or two years to be seen. The, so the pain clinic in itself creates a whole other avenue of waiting. And so then nobody asks about their pain for two years because they're still waiting for their appointment. So you can kind of see how, you, why would you bring it up in clinic if that was the outcome? <clears throat> Or why would you bring it? Why would you ask as a clinician if you knew that was all you could do? So there's this bit in the middle that I think uh, specialist nurses, specialist physios, uh, psychologists within haemophilia can actually lead on, on that as a management strategy for people who have pain. Okay, so um, as you both know, because you're both involved in it, we're doing a pain survey at the moment uh, through HemeNet in the UK. Um, and we're doing that because we heard from people with haemophilia that they had pain and we heard from some bright like-minded clinicians like yourselves that actually people with haemophilia had more pain and we were ignoring it. Um, and so that survey's out at the moment and the data is starting to come back in. What would, and I, I'm guessing, I haven't looked at any of the data yet, but I'm, I'm guessing that quite a lot of people are going to tell us that they have quite a lot of pain. What do you think we should then do with all of that information? Because what you're saying is we've got nobody in the haemophilia centre that can help and we can refer them <coughs> to the pain clinic and they can wait for a long time and that probably still won't help. So what are we going to do with it all? So I think we do have people in the centre that can help. I think we need to have a strong, hard look at ourselves and what we're providing from a care perspective. If treatment, haematology treatments are so good, actually let's, and nobody is bleeding, certainly if you're on prophylaxis in the UK, um, Actually, can we not use some of that clinic time to help be, concentrate less on bleeding, which isn't really happening for some people, and actually in some of the other things? So if we have two review clinics a year, one review is the hemostasis, hematology thing, and the other review is the person living with the hemostasis, hematology thing, and begin to investigate that a little better. Um, I think there is, you know, there are ways and means. Um, People have a responsibility to to acquire knowledge about things like this. However, 
as Natalie can attest, the amount of pain literature within haemophilia is not great. Um, however, if you then direct somebody to pain literature in some the Journal of Pain, they will probably be quite bamboozled by the sheer degree of pain physiology. And so there may be a, there's, there's probably a gap in how we know what's out there and how we bridge that to clinical practice specific to haemophilia. I think there are opportunities. I think there are staff who are interested and care enough that they feel they could do better if leadership of those centres and those departments allow that to be a positive development. Natalie, you talked earlier about the, the study that you'd done in Belgium um, and talked about neuropathic pain and how you'd identified different, it wasn't just joint bleeds pain. So having identified all of that, do you think that's made a difference to haemophilia care delivery and patients? Um, the study I talked about is still in progress, so we do not have full data and it's an observational study, meaning that we do not interfere with the management of the patient for the, the study. But I think that this will um, open discussions with the teams because uh, next step is, of course, to, to, to manage the pain according to underlying pain mechanisms, to use the neuropathic pain as an example, because the pain medication can be uh, different, but also to, to yeah, to encourage people that physio can also deal with pain and not only with the joint or the movement of the joints. Um, so I think we need more research, as Paul said, and uh, I hope that uh, the HEMNET study or the other studies will um, allow hemophilia treatment center to make it a priority and to send the nurses and their physicians to pain courses so that at least also from a clinical point of view, we can have a better assessment of pain and we can at least try a few options with the patients uh, within a research context, but also within a clinical context. So I think that these studies, the HEMNET study and the other studies are really important to convince uh, healthcare providers to make it a priority, but also the patients to speak about it and that's their responsibility to, to, to discuss it with uh, the different members of the Haemophilia Treatment Centre. So I think, I think positive news. And, and taking a, a step forward, and that is that they are services that are co-designed. It's a very fashionable word at the minute, but actually that the, the, the opinions, beliefs, the thoughts, the experiences of people living with haemophilia and pain are used to help design and implement services that will be of benefit for them. Implementing a service that is a pain clinic within a haemophilia centre that is physician-led that only gives out more pain medication may be helpful, but it may not be. So actually, is it not better to spend some of the time, as, as Natalie said, sort of gathering this information, seeing what the problem is, putting it back to people who live with it and say, right, this is what we understand you are telling us is the problem. The proposition is that we design a clinic specially for this or we look at how we can help you. What would help you? What would you want? And actually you design it around what people feel they want rather than what we think they want because actually we don't live with haemophilia and we don't live with the constant pain or the constant awareness of risk and danger and is it bleeding and all of that sort of what we call interoception, this, this sort of internal uh, surveillance of everything, um, you know, we, we need to understand better. Um, 
what people want. Which sounds, when you say it out loud, and I'm listening to myself, it sounds so ridiculous because obviously healthcare should be based around what people need and want. But actually, I'm not convinced in a sphere like this that it necessarily is. Natalie, any thoughts on that? We need to go forwards, both in clinics and, and try. It's what the patients are doing in any case now. They are not waiting for the approval of the physician or the nurse to do something or the physiotherapist. So I think in, in, in clinics, let, let's speak about it and, and let's evaluate what works for whom, uh, because you treat the person, not the condition. And what will work for one patient will not work for the other patients. But um, for me, have a, a broader discussion about it um, is really the first step uh, that can be done in, a, in an easy way. Uh, yeah especially since the, the hemophilia part or the hematological part is now better managed and is maybe less uh, time-consuming, maybe, I'm not sure, but maybe with better medication and less comorbidities. Um, and also the, the, the hope is that in, in new generations of, of adolescents that are becoming an adult and that have quite preserved joints, um, you, you can start something new to, because they didn't have this past of... of uh, uh, a lot of bleeding and a lot of joint damage and, and chronic pain. Um, and, and finally, I think in fundamental research, um, one of the most important future directions is this uh, evaluation of microbleeds and, and inflammatory components to see on, on a more physiological level, what can we measure? Because we cannot measure it for the moment. So it's very difficult to, to evaluate possible effects of new medications. If you cannot measure it, you cannot say something reliable about it. So I think on, on all, all uh, part of science, if it's fundamental science or clinical science, we will have evolutions the next 10 years. So. One of the things that has struck me from the very beginning of this Hemecast where we talked about the fact that we're rubbish at assessing pain, actually we're probably not as bad as we perhaps think we are. But I just wonder as a final question, and Natalie, you just touched on this briefly with by talking about the adolescents who maybe have had better treatment. Do we think that pain-free haemophilia in the future is a reality? Um, I hope that it's not, because I hope that they will behave like other adolescents and that they will have soccer match with contacts and that they will train for uh, a heavy uh, running uh, competition and that they will have pain as normal adolescents or non-hemophilia adolescents have. So I really hope that you do not wish that they are in a preserved condition and, and not feeling any pain because you do not put them in daily life conditions. But yes, I hope that it will be on an occasional basis and not on a regular basis. That's my hope for hemophilia patients. That would be very lovely. Paul, do you have anything to add to that? I would, I would agree. And I think I would hope that pain for those with no joint damage associated with hemophilia it becomes part and parcel of their healthy lifestyle that actually ankle sprains and lumps and bumps and all part and parcel of the the thing and actually pain becomes normalized as a response as opposed to um demonized or fear inducing because i think we still are not far enough away from pain equals bleed. I don't I don't think we're that is truly in the past because perhaps for some younger children who are there the first in their family and there's no familial experience, perhaps that is the, the case. But 
if you have a carrier who's mum who's had a brother or an uncle or a granddad who has a life with haemophilia her view of pain and haemophilia and bleeding is is colored by by the family history and then you go to the the center and do this this is your your kid is normal do everything but and that's it's that but it's that but be wary of the day of prophylaxis or be just that little you think you're probably helping but i'm not sure you're sort of giving a positive message with a dark overtone of but leading is still possible um uh, yeah but i would i would like to see it normalized as a thing that just happens as opposed to um, always being associated with bleeding and i think we have a lot there's that whole gray area that we have a lot to work out um let's say we that i mean we as in people with hemophilia and clinicians who come into their sphere i just to echo that point that lots of people who work in hemophilia are experts in hemophilia and pain is part of hemophilia so actually i think i think people are more confident with what they see and i think if people take their confidence and their expertise i think the pain stuff could could develop sort of naturally within centers i think seeing it as oppositional to haemophilia or somebody else's responsibility isn't helpful so i think if people just have a maybe a mindset shift that actually they do understand the person they do understand the person's haemophilia and they probably have a fairly good understanding of why they're seeing the pain behavior that is there with them so i think maybe maybe clinicians need to be more confident in what they know rather than focusing on what they think they don't know yeah i i agree paul but don't you think they will be will they feel more comfortable if they can have a, a little bit more practice on, on other healthcare providers compared to patients so that you you put them into a kind of role play to discuss pain matters and to give them ticks and tricks about communication about how to ask open questions about uh, maybe a kind of decision tree also to see if if something neuropathic is going on and mm. that's not so difficult to organize i think so I, i also think that it's good that it's the hemophilia treatment centers uh, the healthcare providers of the hemophilia treatment can centers that that are dealing with the, the the pain stuff but i think that a little bit more um yeah knowledge and and uh, experience into this matter could help to feel more comfortable to discuss it with patients absolutely and i think where you get learning and development from and, and sort of continuing professional development actually is that not something that perhaps world federation or ehad could do as a breakaway session that people register for those kinds of workshops that are um because arguably people do these things if they're interested but also sometimes you need a carrot and a stick you need to provide cme points you need to provide a certificate you need to provide an agenda so actually you know i think there's a lot of scope for building on what's already there but um i think it'd be lovely to see something like ehad or the world federation of hemophilia creating this kind of um but it being led by by pain scientists and pain clinicians not hemophilia clinicians i think it needs to be we need to learn better from other f- fields to do it better with what we've got rather than what we think works because as you say if we don't know how it's been done in other fields we can't improve our own um, but i don't yeah i think that would be amazing
I think that would be really nice if WFH did something like that, because I'm just thinking about all those small boys that I see in Uganda. Nobody yeah. even discusses pain. They don't even get a paracetamol. I mean, they don't get factor, mm. they don't get anything. And everybody just keeps saying, oh, they're so stoical. And yes, they are, but that is even no other option. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then actually what that does, what that does to someone, you know, a lot of the men I interviewed for my study remember being 10, 12 and 15 in a hospital bed for six months and the fact that the option was immobilization and pethidine. But pethidine made them not have any pain, but then they didn't know where they were. So you sort of, so sometimes it's easier to put up with the pain because you can begin to control how it makes you feel, which is actually not, that's fine historically. Actually, that is not fine now. That is, you know, we have the means at our disposal to, to do the good, to do the simple things better. Fabulous. Thank you both very much. So I'd like to say an amazing thank you to both Natalie and Paul for giving up an hour of their time to talk about pain, something that they're both clearly very passionate about. I hope you've learnt something during this uh, HemeCast and I hope that you continue to listen to future ones as they come on online. Thank you also to the pharmaceutical companies that sponsor the HemeNet educational programme and thank you to you for listening. See you again soon.